Got a comment from our missionary to Mexico last week saying that our kids are the best dismissed kids that he's ever seen in a church. So commendations to the kids on their way out of the auditorium. Nobody does it better. I'm not sure what that means for your future, but it sounds good. Uh, Joey and Emily, would you guys mind after the service, could we pray for you? Could I get the pastors together and, the fam and your family that's here today? And could we pray for you before you depart today? Um, I want to give a quick thanks to some ladies who made a very special time of gathering for our ladies here on Saturday. We had a gathering, I think about 60 moms who are in the category of parenting little ones in those challenging years. Busy, busy years, and so I know that was a, just a great time of ministry and fellowship together. I want to thank my wife for uh, putting that time together and serving the ladies, and I want to thank the ladies who came to serve uh, our younger folks. And You know, there, there's a uniqueness that we get to bump into from time to time and how God has allowed us to walk together and years and years of relationship, which I think as it should be in the body of Christ, that we should, we should be writing some history together as we walk in the kingdom. Uh, but it was, it was interesting to hear my wife describing the event and the ladies that were there and to hear names mentioned uh, like Liz Widener, uh, Jean, uh, Darlene DeSherry, uh, Annette Loria, we're sitting at tables, and they're ministering to these moms whose children uh, are, you know, in those early years, those first few steps. Uh, unique because it seemed like just yesterday, you know, our oldest is now entering college, and those same set of ladies were ministering to us years ago when our oldest was not 18. She was just a little baby, and we were trying to figure out what do you, how do you do this, and uh, please help us, and please encourage us, and they were there faithfully doing that then, and they're still here faithfully doing that today for ladies, as, and that is as it should be, so thank you to you ladies who made yourselves available to minister to the up-and-coming next set of moms who are in those years together. Well, this morning, we're in part two of Discipleship in the Digital Age. Let me start by reading Ephesians 5. You can turn there quickly with me. You're welcome to read along. Because I think it frames a little bit of what we're attempting to do by turning our attention to conditions that exist in the world in which you live. Conditions that touch your lives. Conditions that maybe you're not aware of how they're touching your lives. Because there's stuff going on in our world that sometimes... You know, it's, it can get like house odor, you know. Everybody's got one, but you're just not aware that you do, right? You just get used to the fact that your house smells a certain way. Everybody else walks in and they know, hmm, okay, that's not what my house smells like. Uh, and you get used to just living your life within the smell. Well, kind of life is, is that way. And there's stuff going on that verses like this call us to pay attention to and be careful about. Ephesians 5, <coughs> 5 verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days 
are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. All right, so here's a, here's a passage that takes us into every moment in church history. It's here at the very beginning. It's here 100 years after this verse is written, 1,000 years after it's here today. Be careful how you walk. Don't be unwise. Be wise because the days are evil. And I guess you could maybe say the days are uniquely evil. The days throughout church history have not always been exactly the same. The church hasn't always dealt with exactly the same thing. There's been uniqueness to the way in which evil kind of finds its way into our lives. And I think we live in a day like that, but, but, but we're not unique. And I don't want to come off sounding like, oh, because that quite honestly, if you, if you study church history and you study those who wrote through church history, every pastor believed that he was facing unique situations. Everybody who wrote at all at any moment said, there's never been a moment like this in the church. Uh, okay, probably not exactly accurate, but it sure feels that way, that there are unique things that we're facing. But when you visit history, you find out that there's been stuff going on that uniquely has affected the church for years and years, right? If, you, if you're a philosophy student, you, you know, the digital age probably won't quite make a philosophical statement, although maybe it will at one point. But period of time, like the age of enlightenment, and if you're a philosophy student, you know the age of enlightenment. It's kind of 1700s, 1800s. An enlightenment emphasis in that people were beginning to see and understand things. At least they thought they were. They were seeing things about life. There was a huge emphasis put upon knowledge and on reasoning. And man's ability to reason his way through life. Man was finally getting to be smart enough to figure life out. And so this emphasis gets placed on man's reasoning abilities. We can think our way through situations. Now what I find interesting is, you know, you get this emerging in the 1700s and the 1800s. And it's on the heels of a very important invention. In 1450, Gutenberg invented the the printing press, all of a sudden, knowledge can go viral in a way that it never could before. Much teaching and knowledge was going to have to be firsthand communicated to you, so it's going to need a one-on-one slow exchange for you to ever get some of this knowledge and information. But in 1450, all of a sudden, there's this invention, there's this technology that makes information is going to now be bound in books, and books can be reproduced one after another after another, and eventually people can get these books in their hands. And it won't be too long before man has a lot of knowledge. He's got a lot of reasoning, a lot of insights into life that he didn't have before. And thus the age of enlightenment comes to be. Not too far after the age of enlightenment, you know, these, these philo- philosophical time frames give birth to something else after them. None of them ever stay forever. But there was the, uh, the modern age that came after that. The modern age came on the heels of the Industrial Revolution. Again, something got invented. Technology brought to humanity changes that touched the way in which people live. You know, if you study today, study America in particular, a number of years ago I was reading a couple of books just on, on just the culture in which we live. Uh, really, we are a suburban culture, a culture that didn't exist 
too long before the interstates were around, but the industrialization of the world made urban settings the new population center. So people moved from rural settings where, you know, much of what you read in the Bible has kind of got a rural dynamic to it. Then all of a sudden, the industrial revolution took place and, and all these factories and abilities of man to produce things in massive quantities moved to urbanized centers and with it a whole change of life. Technology changed the way in which people live. And what's interesting is, you know, the Western world was being created when this technology was flourishing. You know, we are, we are a young country birthed in the midst of the industrial revolution. And so people began to live their lives differently. They got around information then differently. Their patterns of life changed. And one of what's interesting, if you look up something on the westernized age of modernism, one quote I came across said, a salient characteristic of modernism is self-consciousness. Right? Never before, perhaps you could say, in the history of man, has there been such a swing of thought towards individuality and a heightened sense of the self, like the Western world and modernized thinking has brought with it. And so it would have been foolish for the church to be silent on issues like that. <clears throat> it's still foolish. Years ago, you might notice, if you've been a Christian for a long time, you'll notice there was, a, there was this glut of information on self-help books. Y'all remember just the popular publishing both in the world and in the church became focused on self-help, self-actualization. Well, where did these ideas come from? You would not have found that being published when Gutenberg was just warming up his first press. It took years for man's thought processes to shift himself into a different category to where thinking now about life, what was fulfilling, how to approach it, what problems man had, began to be oriented around thinking about the self a certain way. Well, at that point, somebody needs to be reading Ephesians 5 to be wise about how we live because the days are evil. The days were uniquely evil. And attention needed to be given to that. Now, when we move today, we move into a time that's no longer considered modern. It's considered postmodern. I'm not going to get off into all the philosophical thoughts around that. But I think a shaping, influential aspect of our lives today, it may not be philosophical, but it's very functional and it's much like history. It's the digital age in which we live. It's like the invention of the press or industrialization of the world. The digital age is bringing factors to our world that our life is different. It feels different. It's affected differently. Right? So I put up some of these thoughts last week, and I can't go back and revisit those things. But the digital age has brought a different pace of life. Your life is moving along at a different rate than it was just 20 years ago. You probably are noticing that. It's having an effect on you. The digital age has affected the way we process information. We don't think the same way. We don't take in information the same way. We interact with so much more information now. We've learned to do it differently. And therefore, all information that comes to us gets touched by this new style uh, that we've been learning for years. The digital age is affecting how we do relationships. We don't, we don't relate to people the same way. You kind of can't because it's not just you and Little House on the Prairie anymore. 
Facebook and social networks, the invention of the automobile has put you in contact with so many more people. The telephone has put you in touch with so many more people. There's a huge amount of people in our lives. We do relationships differently. Now, I'm, I'm trying to stir us up and get us in touch with the realities of what make our, our lives feel the way they do. What I'm not going to be moving toward at the end of this series is suggestions that we adopt some Amish style of approach to technology, right? You know, so I don't know what happened. You know, the Amish people, if you know who they are, and a lot of folks live up in the Pennsylvania area, they've sort of adopted a mindset that's, that's anti-advancement in technology. You know, don't drive cars. They still drive horse and buggy. There's a simplification of life. And um, Listen, you know, at some point you can't romanticize the idea that life on planet Earth back in here, this was the good old days. This was when things were really, really done right. Uh, no, it's just a condition in which the church finds itself living. Ephesians 5 didn't wait until the year 2011 to be able to come along and say, hey, be careful how you live. Live as a wise person because the days are evil. No, the days were evil then. And there were issues that affected the church then. And there are issues that affect us today. So I, I don't know if you're, if you're bracing yourself saying, okay, where, where is he going with this series? Is, are all of us going to be dropping our cell phones in some box on the way out the church one Sunday morning? It's the altar call here and no longer emails are available. to any, You know, I, I'm not going there, although I might be tempted to go there personally and I might actually like that in some ways. Um, I'm not sure how much we can function in the world by removing ourselves from it in ways that actually are going to also hinder the progress of the gospel that we're called to make in this generation. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure we're grateful that Gutenberg invented the press, aren't we? Right? This Bible went all over the world. It's the most published book in the history of mankind. Thank you, Mr. Gutenberg. Uh, but I don't blame Gutenberg for this, but a reality a reality is not only did this get published, every idea under the sun began to get published. People began to have to face challenging ideas, ideas that challenge Christianity, ideas that challenge Christianity in a way that no one was really anticipating that these kinds of thoughts would come along. You know, when ideas like evolution came along in the mid-1800s, that struck at the very heart of Christianity, because it said your origins are not from God. There's not a being who made you. Made you. You you came to be out of an accident. You're just the. You're just what happens when time and chance get together and poof. There, you don't have any accountability to a being who created you. It's personal. You understand? I don't know if there's an idea that more undercuts the foundations. That when at the end of the game of life. All of us report back to our creator. You want to know what your life is about in a nutshell, that's what it's about. You get an opportunity to live your life upon this earth for a brief period of time. And at the end of that life, you're going to report back to the God who gave you that life. And you're going to give him an account. And who he is to you in that moment will mean everything for your eternity. That's a lot different than... You're going to die, and you're going to cease to exist, and you'll have no brainwave activity anymore. You won't know anything, and the bugs in the ground will eat your body, and you're done. There's a far cry 
between those two, isn't there? But you know what's, what was happening at the end of the 1800s was these ideas of the Enlightenment were encroaching upon Christianity. And a group of ministers found it necessary to turn to the 1900s, about 1909. A man, a wealthy man, funded a project because he saw a concern that Christianity was being eroded by these ideas, these challenges as to whether you could trust the veracity of the Bible. Higher criticism began to be the thinking that was in the land. See, people actually fall in love with the idea that we're smart. We know stuff. We've been enlightened. So they begin to challenge the foundations of Christianity. Well, a wealthy man funded a group of leaders in the body of Christ to say, you know what? The fundamentals of Christianity are being eroded by these ideas. And so he actually funded a project for these pastors to begin to write down articles to define the fundamentals of Christianity. Before this erosion began to create such a confusion to where people began to not be able to recognize Christianity anymore. Because a lot of it was calling itself Christian. And so these guys published, I think it was 12 volumes originally that they, they published. Um, 90 articles maybe. And they were called the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And this man published these and sent them free of charge to missionaries and pastors and churches all over the world as much as they could. And, you know, I, I thought, okay, at, at points in church's history, we, we've got to do the same thing. We, we've got to keep the erosion of Christianity from eating away Christianity to the point where it no longer looks like Christianity. And I think that's happening today. I think there are some fundamentals, and this is a weak attempt at fundamentals, and, and I'm not willing to stand in front of a firing squad over saying these are truly the irreducible fundamentals. I call them that in your outline. But I would say these factors begin to be the irreducible factors of walking as a Christian. And the digital age is eroding them. It's a tidal pool that's come to the shorelines of our lives and it's beginning to eat away at all these factors. And if you and I are not wise in which the evil days in which we live, you will begin to see a diminishing of these factors in your life and your Christianity, I promise you, will spin out of control and you won't know why it is that it's not working. Right? Here's the fundamentals, and this is what this series will attempt to address. The one we'll talk about today is knowing God. An irreducible fundamental to Christianity is the call for us to know God intimately and to be known by him. That's, if, if you're looking at your life and any of these categories are finding weakness and you're saying, you know what, that's not, that's not really happening real well for me, then you are flirting with an amazing amount of dysfunction as a Christian. Biblical prayer. Biblical prayer. We'll look at that probably next week. Looking at what it means to commune with God, to relate to God, to have a communication with a living being who makes himself known to you in particular ways and to whom you come and bring your life to him in particular ways. That's an irreducible fundamental. If in your life you can't find biblical prayer, then you are not going to be able to live as a Christian. Fellowship. You cannot travel into the Bible 
whether it's from the Old Testament of Israel to the New Testament church, you cannot travel into the Bible and find the people of God being the people of God on their own. It doesn't exist. It's not an idea from God. So when you look at your life and you say, okay, what's fellowship looking like for me? What, what does it look like for me to be connected to and joined to other Christians intentionally? Well, if the busyness and the pace of life of our world is causing us to say, you know, I just don't, that's not a category I ever seem to get around to. I don't seem to have time for that. You know, I, you know, I miss a lot of Sunday mornings. I, I don't really have an intentional pattern of fellowshipping with other believers. If that's in your life, this is, this is an irreducible fundamental. There's no such thing as being a Christian without being in fellowship. There's no such thing. You cannot invent a pattern. That avoids that. I think if you extract fellowship, and you may manage to maintain some of these other ones, but you extract fellowship, you cannot live the Christian life. It's eroded too much of your life. Teaching and learning. It's an unavoidable, loud thing throughout Scripture. Everywhere in Scripture, something is being taught to us. And a proclamation is being made that we needed to learn something. If your life ever becomes weak in the category of being taught and learning, then you have tampered with an irreducible fundamental. If you can't find that in your life right now, I don't know, you know, you can cross your fingers and hope you're living the Christian life, but I doubt you are. Mission. When you meet people, when you meet the people of God in Scripture, they are on a mission, whether they are the Old Testament saints or the New Testament saints. Their life is on a mission. And that mission may show up in their personal lives, but it is not a personal mission. You understand the difference? Right, we join ourselves to a mission already in progress. When I got saved in 1979, God didn't join himself to the mission that uniquely made me who I was. Raised the way I was, with the gifts and talents that I had, with the particular personality that I had. And God joined me in making my life to become all that it could ever be. What a great God. He wanted to bless me and make every dream I ever had come true. I know for some that sounds like the gospel. They've heard that. Now, when God opened my eyes to see, he opened my eyes to see that he was redeeming a fallen planet, and I had a moment to join him in that mission before I would go and stand before him, and my moment would be gone forever. If you extract mission from Christianity, you have reduced Christianity to something that it is not. So these are irreducible fundamentals in my thinking. I hope they represent accurately, truly, what's irreducible. Let me move into the area of knowing God today. Knowing God. Knowing God, as I'm going to say, is the fuel of the Christian life. It's, it's the air we breathe. It was, it's what sustains us. And this, this pace of the digital age and the, the way in which we process information is eroding, it's challenging our knowing of God. Let me give you some thought from the digital world from Mr. Tim Challies. He says, the speed of the digital life, the understanding that emails grow stale, they are not responded to immediately, 
Anybody feel that way? Anybody get other people who email you something that they feel that way? They sent this to you yesterday and you haven't responded. The knowledge that a text message that is a few hours old is already ancient (laughs) increases the pace of our lives. Eventually, we begin trying to make everything faster. We try to speed up our families, our worship, our eating. We begin to race through life unwilling or perhaps unable to slow down, to pause, and to reflect. And yet when we turn to the Bible, when we turn to the source of divine wisdom, we see very little about a life dominated by more, dominated by speed. On the contrary, we look to our heroes, we look to our Savior, and see a life that is contemplative, a life that takes time to ponder the deep things. And if we're growing shallow in our ability to process information and the time we take to interact with it, then we are we are letting the digital age erode a very foundational component of the Christian life. We are intended to think deeply about God. And that doesn't happen instantly. Anybody in this room who's walked with God for years will quickly tell you, you just can't get God to speak by squeezing him and telling him he's got two minutes, go. For some reason, he doesn't tend to operate that way. Apparently, he's thinking he's worth more than two minutes. And he makes us wait. You find in the Bible, you find strange waiting periods in the Bible. Right? I, find, I find Moses on the mountain for 40 days for something that should have taken 40 minutes. God dictating the law to him. Read it. See how much he's got there. 40 minutes? I mean, God did the writing for some of it. How long did it take God to carve in stone the tablets that Moses took down from the mountain? Why did this man have to wait 40 days for it? God is into waiting. And you and I are not into waiting. That's a problem. Tim Challey says, Our desire for speed and productivity has made it nearly impossible to dedicate time to thought and meditation. Instead, we find that we succumb to shallow thinking. Such shallow thinking becomes increasingly hard to combat when we become people who multitask and seek to learn, not by reading, but by skimming. Along the way, we necessarily sacrifice quality in favor of quantity, depth in favor of width. Tim Challey says, we must learn to deal with unending sources of information and how to survive amid its constant flow. The Bible seems to tell us it would be far better to know fewer things, but to know those things on a much deeper level. It would be far better to know fewer things but to know them on a much deeper level. That is not the philosophy of the information age in which you live. If you don't intentionally take that thought and cram it into your brain on a weekly basis, you will think it is far better to be familiar with little bits of information all over the globe 
Because that's what normal looks like now. That's the new normal. It won't work well. It will not serve your walk with God well. See, knowing is foundational. Knowing is the air we breathe. If you and I are not knowing God, then your Christianity is being choked. You're being held underwater. You are gasping. You are in a panic spiritually. And you might not feel that way, but you are. You're gasping for what really your spirit wants to know. You're gasping for what your soul longs for. Now, if I live at a surface level and I live at a flesh level, I may not be aware I'm gasping at all. I'm busy. Stuff's going on. Things are good. There's people in my life. I've got a lot of activities. My calendar's full. My job's doing well. Are those the things, though, that are primary for your life? Or has God made knowing him the primary thing of our lives? Let me just walk us through a little bit of how the Bible emphasizes this knowledge of God. John 17, verse 3, Jesus says, And this is eternal life. This is it. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This, this is eternal life. This is it. I don't know what it is that we feel like it is on a Monday morning when we're setting the pace for the week and when we're making choices. What is it that we feel like, no, no, this is life for me. This is what life is for me. And I'm in a panic to get that done or see that accomplished or make sure that thing is not lost. And God comes along and says, no, 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 this is life. That they know you, God. That's life. And when you look throughout Scripture, and I'm going to take in a quick survey of this concept of knowing God throughout the pages of the Bible. You see what emphasis is placed there, what importance is given to just you and I knowing God. If you visited the, the law, the first five books of the Bible, as well as really into the rest of the Old Testament, you'll come across this phrase. It says, that they may know I am the Lord. That they may know. In other words, God did this, and then he says that they may know I am the Lord. Then he did this, that they may know I am the Lord. When you read some of the prophets, it's filled with fireworks. It's filled with explosions. It's filled with massive doses of God stepping into man's situations, destroying something in a moment, and then following up by saying that they may know I am the Lord. Apparently, God's doing a lot of stuff in the heavens, on the earth, with people, with circumstances, for the sole purpose that you and I would know he is the Lord. That's that statement of the I am, I am, that you might know I am. I am the eternal one. I'm the one for whom it's all about. So there's this function of knowing God where God is doing things and knowing him informs us and convinces us. God says, I'm doing this that you may know I am. There's a convincing there. There's a convincing that leads to convictions. There's a convincing that leads to right and wrong, valuable and cheap, that comes from knowing God this way. Can can I tell you, I think the church today lacks convincing. We are not convinced of God. Therefore, we are often not convicted about the manner in which we live our lives. 
about what we're pulling our hair out over. Listen, I know there's part of us here when I say we're not convicted, part of us go, who? Dude, what you going to talk about here? If you only knew. I'm trying not to let people know. I'm here on a Sunday, but dude, man, if you knew what my life was like during the week. What are you going to give? What's your example going to be about not being convicted? All right, how about this so I can sink everybody? (laughs) Not the tawdry places you've been, not the places you'd be embarrassed to see somebody get out of your car and go into that place. How about the fact that we're just not convicted and convinced about trusting God? Some of us don't have to get in a car and go anywhere to be pulling our hair out in fear and worry and unbelief. Because we're just not convinced. But God did this and God did this and God did this that you might know I am. And I don't know it. I just know that problem is about to eat me. I know that person's about to do this to me. I know my finances are about to have this problem. I know that. I'm not convinced. But God says, I've done these things that you might know. Listen, we're a people who don't know. You cannot live the Christian life without knowing this God and being convinced and affected by him. When you... See this knowing in the prophets, right? Let's visit Jeremiah for a moment. Go ahead and turn to Jeremiah. I'll put Jeremiah 9 there, but go ahead and turn to that passage because I want to back us up a little bit as we look at it. In the prophets, the knowing has a restraining influence on people's lives. Though they be tempted to wander into the countryside and live like the people of this world, What they know of God restrains them. It it keeps them in boundaries. And so Jeremiah brings this up. This is a famous passage that we hear a lot of. Jeremiah 9, 23. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. I'm going to find something to, to set your hat on, to rest your life upon, to make of most importance in your life. Let it be this, that you understand and know God. Whether you're rich or mighty, or people think you're wise, Don't make those the things that you lean upon and you boast in and you set your life in. Let it be this, that you understand and know God. The influence in these people's lives, if they had only understood and known God, what a different life they would have lived. What a restraining influence the knowledge of God would have been to their self-destructive patterns. You want to see a people who are self-destructive? Back up from that verse. Because we read that verse and we don't see its context. For Jeremiah, this is a horrible time for the people of God. It's not just an admonition about things that we're to put our hope in and boast in. It's set in a setting. Listen back in chapter 8, verse 18. This is the running start that we get to get to that verse. My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Behold the cry of the daughter of my people. 
from the length and breadth of the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is, is her king not here? Right? This is a, a declaration that the people of God's lives look so disheveled, the pattern of living is so far gone that you would not have ever guessed that they even knew God. Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images, with their foreign idols? Look in verse 20, 21. The wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn and dismay has taken hold on me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? Now, let me rescue this verse from obscure context, right? We're, we're reading about the nation of Israel, 600 years before Christ, right? Maybe, maybe we're thinking not even relevant. No, it's relevant because it's the people of God. It's the people who knew God back then, but their lives had so departed from God. So can I rescue this from us thinking, wow, that's, that's really a bad situation way back then that, that existed here. As I read through these next verses, can you put pe- real people into your mind for a moment? Can you put wayward children in your thinking? Can you think about people you know who are addicted to stuff in their life? They're addicted. They're controlled by things. They're being led about into destructive choices and behavior by alcohol or drugs or pornography or gambling. Their lives are under the control of that. People who are in destructive self-serving, what they think will be best for them in a moment, and you look behind them and there's a trail of destroyed relationships. Right? Some of you guys are in the trail laying on your back because somebody ran over you and kept going. Some of you are the trailblazers. But these are real people, right? This is not just some ancient situation. Listen, verse 1. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go away from them. For they are all adulterers, a company of treacherous men. They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land. For they proceed from evil to evil. They do not know me, declares the Lord. Do you see where that behavior came from? This is the consequences of not knowing me. This lament, this this cry of, oh, that the tears could flow like a river off of my face over the grief of a people's lives that are so wearisome and sinful because they don't know me. Let everyone beware of his neighbor. How would you like to live amongst his people? Maybe you do. And put no trust in any brother. For every brother is a deceiver and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak 
lies. Listen, do you really need to go back to 600 B.C. to find anybody you know that that just described? This land of information has taught us to be very loose with information, to adjust it however we see fit. Lies are just not a big deal anymore. People lie about so much stuff today. They stretch things and spin things. Right? People make radio and TV shows out of spin, right? And no spin zones. Because everybody is lying about everything these days. Whatever serves me, I'm going to say it a certain way. And gossip, oh my gosh, gossip and slander, it's almost normal. I'm amazed within the body of Christ. Please don't think I'm talking about those people. I'm amazed that within the body of Christ, people are so free to say stuff about somebody else. It doesn't ring anybody's bell anymore. Nobody's freaked out by it because it's so normal. You heard somebody say something to you about somebody else that you heard something about that's going on in somebody else's life. There was no sense of, I'm so sorry I told you that. I had, I had no business divulging that person's life. Please forgive me. I have sinned against you and them. When was the last time you heard anybody say that to you? As they opened up somebody's life to you with information you didn't have and you had no business having. And it tore that person down. And it may not have even been accurate. But even if it was, you had no business publishing it. You understand how normal this is now? We know each other's business. Heck, we can, we can go on. People publish their lives so we can all, you know, comment on them now. We can all say things. Put together this piece of information with that thing that I heard from so-and-so, and poof, there you are. Let me mention that. Let me mention that to you. I don't, do you even know this person? Let me just mention something to you about them. Do you understand how offensive that is to God? This, this is the flooding of tears of God. God is broken over the condition of his own people that would be that way. Heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. Listen, they refuse to know me. What would be the remedy to all that behavior? Knowing God in a way that's convincing and convicting and effective in our souls. It would restrain that sort of effect coming out of our mouths. You can go on and read this, but you know, verse 8, their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor. But in his heart, he plans an ambush for him. I had somebody tell me the other day about their own experience of bumping into people's lives and then becoming aware of their motives. I'd love to say that it's just the people who don't know God, who've got an agenda, who are working in the relationship, who are saying one thing while their real plan is over here. They seek to extract something. They seek to gain something from you. They're using you. I'd love to say that only the world is doing that. The people who don't know God are doing that. But unfortunately, there are many people who know God who are doing that. In a relationship... And they will treat you one way as long as their goal is attainable or they think it's attainable. But the moment you turn your back and that relationship will no longer serve them, they will stab you, betray you, and treat you differently. 
And all this context is, oh, but if we knew God, that would not be the way in which it looks. See, there are consequences to not knowing God. We begin to practice these things, and we're not even aware how offensive they are when our knowledge of God is shallow and ineffective. Hosea said this, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There's no faithfulness or steadfast love, no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Now, we've heard that verse before, right? You understand, every time God brings that subject up, it's in reference to how destructive the patterns of life have become for a people who no longer know him. It's the air we breathe. Listen, knowing God is as critical of an issue, as foundational of an issue that you and I will ever, ever experience in our lives. Let's see if I can do this quickly. Turn to Psalm 1. When we find God's knowledge in these psalms, wow, what an interaction with life we connect with. The psalms bring to us a knowing that, that comforts and strengthens. You know, some of us are living just some very uncomfortable lives, some very weak lives, some very vulnerable lives. Things in life are going on and things are changing around us. And, and we are vulnerable and weak in being affected by those things. The knowing that you find in the Psalms, it's a knowing that brings with it strength and it brings with it encouragement and it brings with it comfort. Now listen, if you don't have the knowing, then you don't have the strength either and you don't have the encouragement and you don't have the comfort. So you just have the difficulty of life. That's why too many of us. Way too many of us are living within the discomfort of life because we don't know the God who would overcome that by what we know about him. Listen to this in these psalms. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. You can say happy. You can say happy. It's a good word. Happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Now can you pick up two words that have got some weight to them? Delight and meditate. They're, they're not cheap words. They're not skimming words. They're not fast-paced, efficient words, are they? To delight in something has a little bit of a flavor of obsession of devotion, of giving yourself to something, of having a, an appetite for it that keeps coming back for more and more. And meditation is anything but a hasty word, isn't it? It's not just a thought. Oh, I had a thought about God. Poof, on to life. Well, I had this thought about God. I read a little quick scripture, had a thought, and poof, onto our lives. 
No, meditation is to stop and ruminate and turn over again and again and again and take that scripture and look at it this way and turn it upside down and look at it from another angle and back away from it and look at it from your life 10 years ago and what it would mean for you five years from now and look at it in light of the events. It, it's, a, it's a thoughtful, deep concept. And what, what's the effect of this? The effect of that is this man is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Right? And that's a description of the fruit of one who is delighting in knowing God and meditating on him. The fruit of that is you're like, unlike the other trees, who are not planted by this river, who are far, far removed from it, when the ground dries up, right, the ground of circumstances dry up, that tree dries up. The leaves begin to wither and crack. And whatever that person's hope was, because it was temporarily based in circumstances or people rooted in the wrong things, their life dries up right along with that. But unlike that person, the person whose delight and meditation is in God, he's like a tree that gets planted right next to a river. And that river always supplies. If it hadn't rained in a long time, there's water in that river. And he's got a source in the midst of the dryness, in the midst of the desert. There's something in his life that affects him still. You see the effectiveness of the knowledge of God that the Bible's aiming at? In all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Man, this, is a, this can be a confusing verse. Wait, you're telling me that the righteous guy who's planted by the river of God's life, in all he does, he prospers, but the, the wicked are not so. They're blown like the chaff with the wind. Wait a minute, Keith. Um, I'm looking to God. I'm seeking to do what you're describing. And I got this problem and this problem and this problem going on in my life. And then I know guys who don't even know God. And they're rich. They're influential. They're mighty. They look like they've accomplished something. What's up with that? What's up with that? you may need to stop looking at the Bible through the, the lens of temporary natural-mindedness. Where God says life counts. Remember where God said life counted? In this is life. That you know me. Let the man who boasts, boast in this. That he understands and knows me. Not in his riches. Not in his might. You see what that... Bible verse screams at us, and especially Jeremiah, especially Hosea, who was 100 years before Jeremiah, who's speaking to a people whose lives are in disarray, but they're rich. They're influential. They've got might and power. It was one of the most glorious times in Israel's history into which some of the most God-awful behavior was being exhibited. And God says, you're not prospering. That's not prosperity. You are not prospering. That's why Jeremiah comes along and says, don't, don't boast in riches and might. Boast in this, that you understand and know me. 
Listen, weigh your life through that lens and you'll look at everything differently. It won't just be a matter of, is my life comfortable? Is my life easy? One more passage here. Psalm 46. Listen to what this knowledge does to us in strengthening us and helping us. Verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Right now, I love the way the verse says that. It doesn't say he might become that. He could be. We hope that he will be one day. It says he is. He is that right now. Now, I don't know how convinced I am of that, which would have to do with how well I know God, but he is that right now, even if my life doesn't show it. He is still that. Therefore, right, as a result of who God is and who I know him to be, therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, right? Do you get what this is going after here? This is all the immovable structures of our lives, if you will. The earth and the mountains, you know, this is, this is the stuff that you and I grow to, to hope are going to stay in place in our lives. Our health, our marriage, our finances, right? these things are mountains to us. They are these sources of great strength. And the Bible says, what will happen when they begin to shift and they begin to move? And all of a sudden, your marriage feels tenuous and your job doesn't feel like it might be there. It's moving in your life. That's exactly what this verse is trying to awaken in you. Well, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, the bill collectors call. Okay, it doesn't say that, but it could. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. That's a big statement. We don't get that statement. The Lord of hosts, he's the captain of the armies of the powerful angels of God. He's the Lord of hosts. That's a statement of power. We ought to almost draw a weakness of breath when we hear it. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, right? You're going to need to know something about this God. Come and study Come and learn. Come and know deeply the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am. Do you, do you see what's needed? See, this is, this is a life for us that's got two components to it. One of them is the life of trouble. 
in the midst of this great God is the reality that the things that you and I love and depend upon shift and move. And where they were yesterday that we thought was a good place, all of a sudden it feels like it shifted to a questionable place or shifted to a bad place. That mountain's being removed. And you thought you were safe. You're far enough away from that event. That'll never come here. And then the waters come rushing in and they find you. And you never thought that issue would be a part of your life. But the waters have come and they have found you. What will you do in that moment? Well, if you're going to experience any form of peace, strength, refuge, you're going to need to know something about God in that moment. If you have a weak knowledge of God, you are in a bad, bad place. Now, I'm, not going, to, I'm going to skip the rest of that outline there. How interesting. What is standing in the way for you personally of you knowing God this way. Right? I know all of us, you know, knowing gets real practical, gets real down to earth at some point. It becomes how I'm connecting and relating to God, time that I'm spending with God. Okay, what's, what's in the way of that? Would you have ever thought that perhaps, perhaps one of the top enemies of knowing God would be knowledge itself? Have you ever thought that one of the most effective ways that the enemy could keep you from knowing God would be to flood you with information? Just to give you other stuff to know? Unbelievable quantities of knowing and knowing and knowing. Your brain just travels through so much information every day. Who feels like studying God? Who feels like being still when there's so much to be explored and so much to do and so many things to respond to and so many people in my life with so many problems and needs that I've, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to understand. I wake up in the morning knowing I don't have enough time today to do what I'm going to do. I wake up every day feeling, feeling overwhelmed before my feet are out of the bed because I know what the emails were like the night I, that I read the night before. I know who's on the list of, I need to get to that, and I need to, and that person, and that thing over there, and that's broke, and the air conditioner's about to go out, and. So knowing God is the most important thing that you and I are ever, ever, ever going to do. And it's critical. It's critical to keep the people of God from looking like the landscape of Jeremiah. It's critical if we're ever going to receive the comfort of knowing that we, the people of God, are planted by this river. And God is in the midst of her. And we will not be moved. We feel like we're going to be moved. No, no, no. God is a refuge. He's a castle that we run to. And let the people come screaming out of the woods against us. But God is a castle. And those things cannot get to me. Do I know that? Do I really know that or am I right now here in the noise and looks like it's going to consume me? The mountains are moving. Man, the earth is shaking. My enemies are all around me. All right, well, this morning your great need is to know him. Let's stand up together.
Lord, help us. Help us in the moments that we have here to turn our hearts open to you in ways that we need to hear something from you. God, I pray right now you're, you're opening us to ministry by the Spirit for a moment here. Because there are some here today, Lord, they feel like the, the structures of their life are shifting. They are moving. And there's a lot of fear going on. Lord, it's, it's like a, an earthquake on the landscape of daily living. Mountains that we depended upon that would always be right there and couldn't be moved are suddenly shifting. I believe the Lord wanted to address some folks in some fears that have come even this week. There could be many folks here who would say the, the mountain that has been moving on me lately, it's been my health. That thing that I've never really had to deal with as much as I have lately. It feels threatening and menacing and I'm not secure about where this is headed. I had a sense that there was someone here this morning who this just this past week you discovered something in the category of your health and you feel your world is shifting there's been fear as in this verse I had a, a sense for some folks here I, I'm sure that many folks were affected by changes in the financial world this week and that maybe struck a chord with some. Um, I had a, a, a word for somebody and the, and the word is associated with the word college and I'm, I don't, can't discern too much farther than that except one of two possible thoughts. Either something having to do with your college loan is affecting you or someone who has graduated from college and can't seem to get their career on track and your finances are suffering. You felt the shift of that and it's become a source of fear for you. And I had a sense for folks that perhaps the structure that's moved in your life is in the marriage category. Things are different. What you didn't think would move has moved. And I wrestle with saying this because I'm not saying don't fight for your marriage. But I feel like the Lord was saying don't cling to that spouse. Cling to him. And I don't believe that means that God says give up. just want to be careful about that. But I'm thinking you're fighting for mountains and earth that's moving. You can become very fearful because you're clinging to things that can move and shift. And God is saying, what you need to cling to is me. I am the tower. I am your refuge. I am a source of strength. I'm in the midst of you and your life, and I will not be moved. Be still and know that I am God. 
Oh, Lord, if we are here this morning and the need of our heart is to be still and know that you are God, Lord, please convince us right now of your nearness. As we close this service, God, get a hold of our hearts. Convince us of your nearness, but Lord, convince us that when things shift, that can't be the day that we decide we're going to get to know our God. Lord, we have needed to know you before this day arrived. We have needed to take delight in you and meditate upon you so that when the day came, we would know that you are our refuge, you are a rock, you are immovable, you are a river of life that my leaves are not going to wither. I'm not going to dry up. The conditions of my life don't control my future. God, you do. Your nearness is my good. Be still. Be still. And know that he is God. Let's receive that this morning. As we close in this song, just open your heart to God. Lord, my great need before you this morning is to know you cannot live this life. I cannot walk in a manner worthy of the call without knowing you. Lord, help me. Help me, Lord. Help me in my busyness. Help me in my weariness. Help me in my distractions, Lord. Help me to know you deeply and effectively and convincingly, God. Convince my heart. Trials, Your 
us to be still, to be still long enough to know that you're God, to quiet our souls before you, to open your word, uh, to discern, Lord, your holiness, the wonder of all that you are, Lord, your capacity, your power to sustain us, to provide for us, to be all that we need. Lord, we pray that you would draw up a holy curiosity in our hearts 
to know you, never to settle or to grow apathetic in the knowledge of you, but to reach into your word and say, teach us, Holy Spirit. Teach us the fear of the Lord. Teach us the grace of God. We have not yet known it. Oh, take us further in, Lord, so that our lives might be changed forever. All for your glory. Amen. Amen. God bless you.